Proverbs behind the book of Psalms. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, or the New New Living Translation says the Song of Songs. So open up to the Song of Songs, chapter 2. We're going to start a new message series this morning entitled, The Four Seasons of Marriage. The Four Seasons of Marriage. And for the next four Sundays, I want us to talk uh, about marriage, and each of these messages will come from the Song of Songs. I say four seasons of marriage. There are definitely more than four seasons. Uh, some therapists and experts say there, there are more like nine in a typical married life. I'm going for four because I'm saying spring, summer, fall, and winter just to make it easy on us, easy on myself. But I want us to talk about what it means to be married to the same person for a lifetime. I'm probably uniquely qualified to talk about this. Some of you may not realize this about me, but I have been married to a number of women in my lifetime. I married first uh, a girl who was a lifeguard in her 20s. She was awesome in a brown bathing suit. She would sit up on the high chair there by the pool and twirl her whistle around her finger, and at the same time twirling my heart around her fingers. She was awesome. I married that lifeguard. She was beautiful. She had brown hair with a blonde streak like lightning right down here. Uh, So gorgeous. Uh, As a married couple, we had so much fun. We were young and dumb and in love. We lived in a little bitty apartment. We had like nothing. We had no Christmas ornaments that first Christmas. And so our tree sat there in the corner like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, but we thought it was amazing. We thought it was perfect. But at the end of that Christmas season, our neighbor, who were college students, they threw out their whole tree with all the decorations on it. So that lifeguard, that girl I married, she went out and undecorated their tree on the curb and stole all of their decorations. And we still have strings of lights off that tree. Isn't that amazing? It was fun being married to a lifeguard. It was fun being married to her. She wore sexy pajamas to bed every night, and that was awesome. It just didn't last long. (laughs) I found myself very soon married to a nurse, uh, a labor and delivery nurse, and that was fun too. She worked third shift, which means that she slept all day and then worked all night, and I would work all day and sleep all night. Uh, that's when I became the cook, but that was kind of fun too. I would cook and we would eat and still life was really, really good. We had a lot of fun. That was my, uh, again, second wife, uh, a nurse in labor and delivery. After that, I got, uh, ended up with a a woman who was a nurse in orthopedics. She was sort of becoming more and more of a a different kind of nurse. That was fun. Uh, Then I got married to a, a pregnant woman. I don't recommend this. It was, wasn't very long, but I was married to a pregnant woman, and there was like three months there where she laid on the couch and slept. I mean, that's all she did. And then she woke up, and for three more months, all she ate was cheese. A little grumpy, uh, a little swollen. It was a heat wave in Louisville at the time, but it was fun. I was married to a pregnant woman for that period of time. Uh, after that, I, I was married to a, a woman who had a baby. And that was difficult. It, it was fun, but, but it was difficult. As soon as you have a baby in the house, understand your wife no longer wears sexy pajamas. It was about that time that the woman I was married to started wearing pajamas made out of like flannel and, and Kevlar. Um, the, the kind of thing where by the time you got in there, you were just too tired to think about anything. It was that, that kind of pajamas. and uh, That was fun. That was okay. 
Somewhere after that, I was married to a, a, a woman who um, miscarried all of our babies for a long time. And that woman was uh, amazingly strong and devastatingly sad. And, and it was a really, really tough time of life. It, it was tough being married to her. Then after that, was married to a woman with a, with a toddler and, and, and that was amazing. In, in those years, I was married to a, a, a soccer coach, <laughs> although she had never played soccer. Married to a soccer coach and, and, and of course, a, a healer of boo-boos. Uh, my wife was a nurse, and so if my son ever got hurt, he never just got like a kiss you know, and a Band-Aid. It was more like you know, a scan and, and, and probably traction and uh, some sort of enema. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was a big deal. <laughs> Married to a woman who sent her son to college. That was something else. Um, anyway, fast forward now. I'm, I'm married to a 50-year-old woman. Where there was a blonde streak, there's now a gray streak. Uh, y'all know I've only been married one time. It's, it, it, it's, just, it's Casey. Um, she still looks awesome in a bathing suit. You would not want her to be your lifeguard, though, by the way. She can still swim, but if you put her in a chair and leave her, she'll go to sleep. <laughs> she, she would wake up, and we would all be drowned. Uh, <laughs> understand. Been married 26 years to the same woman, and I have to say at the same time, this is not the girl I married. It's, it's just not. And I am certainly not, not, not the boy she married, um, it's, it's life. It's just simply life. And a very simple concept that I want you to, to absorb over the next few weeks is this. A marriage changes over time because we change. We change. I'm not sure anybody ever told me this. And honestly, there aren't books written about this. Nobody seems to prepare you for the way that a marriage changes over time, the way a person changes over time. It's just inevitable so when you say, I tell you, she's not the girl I married, well, that's the dumbest thing anybody ever said. Of course she's not, and you're not the same man, and, and it is not possible that things stay the same. Everything always changes, and in a marriage, people change, and the marriage changes. That's why we can talk about seasons of marriage. Now, the, the basic... The basic principle that I want us to talk about over the next few weeks is simply this. It, it helps you to know what to expect during the various seasons. Now, say I'm doing four seasons, but honestly, they're probably more like nine, maybe ten. I, I don't know. But, but, the, but the thing is, there are predictable changes. There are sort of transitions that nearly every couple goes through, and it helps to know what to expect during these seasons. Otherwise, you may misinterpret normal transitions as a loss of love or worse, a reason to divorce. You see, this is my concern, that you end up going through the same kind of changes that every couple goes through, but you don't understand the change and therefore you make the mistake of thinking that love is gone or, or even worse, that the marriage is over. So let's talk about seasons of marriage. And for this, let's take a look at the Song of Solomon. Every message from the Song of Solomon. We don't read this book very often, primarily because it's probably rated at least PG-13. There are parts of this book that would be rated R, honestly. 
You can read it as an allegory of God's love for us, Jesus' love for the church, but honestly, it's a book of Old Testament love poetry. It's a collection of love songs. Some of it is really, really sexy. So at any point you think, hmm, I I think I could take that in in, in a sexy way. You can. You just can. And, And there's no apology for that. God created what it is that a wife and husband share, and the Song of Solomon celebrates it. So I won't elaborate on it at any point, but if you want to go home tonight and read it to her in bed, that's cool. That's cool. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 1. Today, let's begin with the springtime of marriage. This is good. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1. I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon plain, the lily of the valley. Here we go. The young man speaks. Like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. Now the woman speaks. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. Ah, I hear my lover coming. He is leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he is behind the wall, looking through the windows, peering into the room. You can get arrested for that now. Verse 10, my lover said to me, rise up, my darling, come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past and the rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come and the cooing of turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit, and the fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Now the man speaks. My dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop outcrop on the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is pleasant, and your face is lovely. Get this, verse 15. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. The woman speaks one more time. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, return to me, my love, like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged mountain. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Not fun? Come on, people, it's fun. It's the springtime of love. Some of you who are married, can you even remember those days? Uh, talk to me a second. What do you think it is that makes those early days, early weeks, early months, early years of marriage, what makes it so good, the springtime of marriage? What makes it so perfect? Talk to me. Everything is new. Absolutely everything is new. All of the towels in your bathroom, new. 
That's amazing. We've been married 26 years. All the towels in our bathroom, old. Yeah, 26 years old, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't buy new towels for the rest of your life, but nobody tells you that. But at at first, everything is new. The toaster's new. The blender is new. Everything is new. And that's amazing. The wife is new. The husband is new. Sexual intimacy is new. Everything is new. Your wedding band is shiny and and new. And that's just absolutely amazing. It's a brilliant time of life. What else? What makes it so special? Everything is new. What else? You poor people, seriously? There aren't a lot of distractions. Yeah, when Casey and I first got married, we had three rules for the first year of marriage. Three rules. Number one, no television. We had no television, and that was a choice we made, and that was a good choice. No television, no kids. We didn't want to have kids the first year, and no pets. No TV, no kids, no pets. We just wanted to have all the time in the world to focus on one another, and it was awesome. You understand? Without TV, children, or pets, you find other things to do, people, and it's good. It's good. No TV, no children, no pets. There are fewer distractions early on, and that means you have a lot of time for being together, and that's good. What else? Wow. No history. Yeah. So far, nothing's happened much, and that works in your favor. It really, really does. You have no history. No history. Everything is beginning, and all you have is future, and that's a blessing. That's a blessing. That means that you can dream a lot and think about the kind of life that you're going to have together. All you have are years and years of marriage stretched out in front of you. Yeah. Look back at the passage because it's really, really kind of funny. Verse 2, the young man speaks and he says, Like a lily among thistles is my darling among women. Now, what's he saying? It's really nice if you happen to be his wife. What's he saying? Like a lily among thorns is my wife among other women. What's he saying? My wife is the best. My wife is the most beautiful. She makes every other woman look like a dog. That's what he's saying. My wife is a lily and every other woman is a thorn, a thistle. Like a lily among thistles is my woman among other women. And what's the woman say? Verse 3. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard. Yeah. When's the last time she said that to you, sir? You are the finest apple tree in the orchard. Every other man in the world is nothing but a dork bush. You understand? They're dork bushes, but my man is like the finest apple tree in the orchard. All I want to do is sit in his shade and eat his fruit. Not good? That's what it says, people. Don't fire me. That's what it says right there. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And this is the springtime of love, and it's beautiful. Because in this period, you're just convinced that, that, that you have the best wife in the world, and she has the very, very best husband, and it's a beautiful time of life. This is exactly as it's supposed to be. So why do you think it's so good? Why does God make it so good? Well, researchers tell us something kind of interesting. Apparently, what we call falling in love 
has sort of a chemical basis in our brains, and I'm not leaving scripture. Understand, this is how God designed us. When you fall in love with, with, with your man or, or with your woman and, and you really begin to, to, to settle in together, your brain absolutely floods with two chemicals. One is dopamine and the other one is sometimes called PEA, phenethylamine. All right, dopamine and phenethylamine. These two chemicals make you crazy for a while, for up to two years. You understand? For up to two years. Phenoethylamine is actually a natural painkiller. So you are literally less aware of pain, less aware of anything negative. And dopamine just floods your brain with positive feelings. Now, this is research and this is scientific and this is proven. This is what happens in those early, early stages of a relationship. You are literally under the influence of mind-altering chemicals. Do you understand? And it causes you to see that person as absolutely the, the lily among the thorns, the, the apple tree among the dork bushes. Understand, it, it causes you to bond. And it is the way that God designed this, and it is the way that God intended. In that early stage of the marriage, the earliest stage of the relationship, you literally have a flood of chemicals in your brain that cause you to bond with this person. And this is precisely what God wants and exactly what God intends. In the book of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh. They will become one flesh flesh. We're talking about a bond. We're talking about two people in such unity of love that nothing can separate them. It is as if they become one body, one flesh. Understand? And this is exactly what happens in this earliest stage. And as a matter of fact, it must happen that that one flesh begins to take place as the couple leaves everything else and begins to cling to one another. This is why God allows your brain just to be flooded with these chemicals that cause you to bond. And this is the bond that's going to last throughout your entire life. It's very important, and it is as God designed. They will become one flesh. But it's this word become. It doesn't say they are. You know, the moment the pastor on the altar says, I now declare that you are husband and wife. You are husband and wife. But, but this becoming one flesh, this takes time. I'm not sure anybody comes out and tells us how much time, but this takes time. Understand, in the springtime of marriage, nothing is ripe yet. The relationship is simply not ripe yet. Look at verse 12. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come, and the cooing of turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit. Fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Understand, the, the fruit of love is just beginning to form. But the relationship is not ripe yet. What this means, of course, is that love in its fuller form, love in its most satisfying form, is going to be somewhere down the road later for the couple. That's not what you have up front. 
Up front, as I said, you have this sort of chemical bliss, that this passion, this incredible intensity of romance that causes you to bond together. But that is not love in its fullest form. And this is the horrible mistake that a lot of couples make. And it is the horrible lie that our culture tells us that that bliss, that momentary rush of, of romance, that that equals love. And I'm here to tell you, that's not what love is. When a couple experiences this, this incredible, incredible ecstasy together, that's not exactly what love is. It is love, and it is true, but it is love in its shallowest form, love in its most primitive form. You've got a long way to go. Nobody says amen to that. Understand, a long way to go. The Song of Songs says the fig trees are are forming young fruit. And it's going to take some time for what the husband and wife share to to ripen. That means your best years are somewhere down the road, honestly. It means that your best happiness is somewhere down the road. It it means that 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 experience of truly being one flesh is going to deepen and grow through the years. Do you understand? All of the richest and tastiest and sweetest fruit of marriage are somewhere down the road, somewhere in the later years. It doesn't mean the early years aren't good. That's sort of the problem that we have. Some people think that the earliest years are the best years that they get. They think that this rush of romance is love turned up hot, and therefore when it begins to grow cold, they begin to think that love has died. They simply don't understand what love is, and they certainly don't understand how a marriage grows. You understand? The problem with our culture is that we don't delay gratification for anything. We want it up front, and we want it now. And nobody expects ever to have to wait. Nobody expects to have to wait for something to simmer, to to, to grow, to to develop. Nobody has time for that. It's like the kid who was one day popping popcorn in the microwave oven, and he said, Mama, how come microwave ovens take so long? Are you kidding me? It used to take us three weeks to pop popcorn. But these days, there's just this sense that that, that if it takes more than a few seconds, that's too long. I'm moving on. You understand? Marriage is not like that. And the satisfaction that comes from marriage does not come early. You will be satisfied early, but I'm just telling you, all of the best, all of the richest, all of the happiness that you live for, it's going to be down the road. It takes time to ripen. It takes time to develop. Love grows. Take a look at this verse because it's actually been very, very controversial in the history of biblical interpretation. Genesis chapter 24 verse 67 is sort of the summary to the story of Isaac and Rebekah when they get married. And this is what it says. Isaac married Rebekah and he loved her deeply. Isaac married Rebekah, then he loved her deeply. Why would you think that verse would cause any kind of ripple of controversy? Well, because in our culture, that's the wrong order. We would say Isaac and Rebecca loved each other and then got married. But in the scripture, it's the opposite order. They got married and they loved each other deeply. Most people in our culture cannot even fathom 
things happening in, in that order. Now, I'm not saying that you don't love each other when you get married. Haven't I said that en- enough yet? It's love. But if you're thinking that that's deep love, if you're really thinking that that is the best you'll ever experience, you don't understand. That's nothing. You're just starting out. And the love that you have at the beginning is probably the most potent love you've ever known in your whole life. But you haven't seen anything yet. I'm telling you, you haven't seen anything yet. Isaac married Rebekah and he loved her deeply. Do you understand? That love grows, that love deepens, it, it, it ripens. The old Jewish rabbis used to put it this way. They would say that, that in Western culture, our culture, we think of marriage as a, as, a, as a bowl of soup. And we take a hot bowl of soup and then we set it aside to grow cold through the years. And that's the way many of you have experienced marriage. And that's what you think marriage is. It's something that starts out hot, but then over time, it just gets colder and colder and colder until eventually you're ready to go eat out. Understand? We think of marriage as something that starts hot and grows cold. But the rabbis used to say that for them, marriage is something that actually starts cold. That when you get married, what you do is you take something cold and then you set it on the fire. And over time, it heats up. Do you understand? That your marriage is not something that starts out hot and then grows cold. Your marriage is something that starts out cold and over the years it warms up. Now I'm not saying every single day just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. I'm not saying that. We have had some cold months in our lives. We've had some cold years in our marriage. I'm talking about the, the large, the greater arc of your relationship. It doesn't move from hot to cold. It moves from cold to hot. It moves from love at its immature, at, at its most shallow phase to love in its depths. Over the course of the next few weeks, I, I'm going to start bringing couples up onto this stage and let you hear it from their own lips. Love does not grow cold through the years. Love does not grow thin. Love does not grow old. Love takes on its depth and luster through the years. Isaac married Rebecca, and he loved her deeply. Take a look at verse 15. This is interesting. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes. And we're not talking about like in the 70s when your girlfriend had a belt that said foxy lady. We're not talking about catch the foxes. It's not that. Catch all the foxes. What are we talking about? Again, it's poetry. So we're talking about the vineyard of love. If your relationship, your marriage is like a vineyard, the grapevines are blossoming. That means, again, it's springtime. It's the early stage of the relationship. So that means at this point, the grapevines, the fruit of love, is just beginning to blossom, just beginning to bud, and it's very, very vulnerable. Understand? It's the springtime, which means things are just beginning and everything's a little bit fragile, So the admonition, the encouragement is to catch the foxes, all the little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. So what are the foxes in in this passage? Somebody tell me. What are the foxes? Anything that threatens the relationship, anything that would harm, anything that would ruin the love between the man and the woman. Can you think of any? I mean, there must be a million different things that would destroy your relationship before it even has a chance to start. 
There's so many foxes we could say that if they are allowed, if the boundaries are not set firm in your marriage and and these foxes are allowed in, they can ruin your life even before it starts, your life together. So honestly, we could stand here all day long and just rattle off things that can destroy an early marriage. But let me just start with a couple. Let me start with the first fox that I would mention. And it's one that I see so much in, in my office counseling couples before they marry. I think one of the first foxes that you just simply have to destroy is that fox of unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations are are always going to lead to disappointment because your expectations in marriage will determine your satisfaction. In other words, if I expect this, but I get this, I'm going to be disappointed. But if I expect this and I get this, then I'm probably going to be satisfied. Expectations are very, very important. And in our day and age, I'm afraid that couples have fewer and fewer realistic expectations about what a marriage is supposed to be. Part of that is because our culture is absolutely so over-sexualized. Our culture is absolutely so antithetical to, to genuine commitment, lifelong commitments, I mean, the people that that you know, our our neighbors, most of the people that surround us, they simply wouldn't even understand how to make a promise that they're going to keep till they die. But that's what marriage is. And so people, young people growing up in this culture have very unrealistic expectations for what a marriage should be. And so we have to learn to explain what marriage is and, and what a person should expect. I meet couples who say to me, Pastor Tim, I don't think that we'll ever have any serious problems in our marriage. I mean, I have couples that say that. I don't think we'll ever have any serious problems in our marriage. Well, what do you say to that? I mean, I hate to, you know, just cloud up and rain on their whole honeymoon parade, you know. But it's very unrealistic to think that you're going to be the exception, that you're going to go through life and never have any serious problems. You will. You just will. Now, I'm not saying that the two of you aren't compatible. I think that if we could take the two of you and wrap you in bubble wrap somewhere and put you off on an island somewhere where nothing would ever happen to you, you'd probably never have any serious problems. But the problem is you're going to have to live in a real world and life happens. And life is unpredictable and life is very, very hard. And you have no idea how hard this is going to be. Not not trying to discourage young people as they get married, but they need to have some realistic expectations. This is going to be hard. This is why you make the marriage vows that you make. It's why they sound the way they do. I promise to love you, honor, and cherish you, and to keep you. I will forsake all others and keep myself only for you as long as I live in joy and in sorrow. In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. I mean, I mean, it was all in there. You just weren't paying attention. Joy and sorrow. You're going to know loss. You're going to know sadness together. And to think otherwise is very, very foolish of you. And if you mess around and marry a person that you know you can't trust when times get hard, then you should never marry that person. You understand? you got to understand this is a lifelong commitment. 
rich or, or, or poor. You have no idea how much money you could make in your life. You also have no idea how poor you could be. I hope you like ramen noodles. I mean, sometimes it's just like that. It's difficult, but it's not about the money. Sickness and in health, when you're young and starting out, you have no idea how sick a person can become. You have no idea. No idea. I often tell couples the story about when I was first starting out in ministry and was out visiting out toward W.B. Adams' house. There was a a man who lived uh, up in a house there, he lived there, and he took care of his wife who was in bed. She was bed-bound. And I always admired him as an older man who was caring for his wife. He could have put her in a nursing home, you know, but he cared for her right there at home. She was completely unresponsive, and he was completely faithful. I visited him a time or two just to go keep him company. The amazing thing for me was the day that I began to put some things together with them. I saw some pictures of a, of a son, and I asked how old the son was, and the son was, I don't remember, 40, 40, 50 years old at the time. And then he said, well, you know, as long as she's been like this. And I said, what? And he said, well, he's as old as, as, you know, as long as she's been in bed like this. I said, what happened? Understand, back in the old days, they would completely knock a woman out for her to have a baby, you know, completely under anesthesia. His wife, his young wife, never woke up from the anesthesia. She never woke up. He took her home and cared for her his entire life. Raised a son by himself. Took care of her every need. Until the day he died. Can you even imagine? Sickness and in health is the promise you make. Do you understand? I'm not saying that these awful things will happen to you. But I'm saying these awful things happen. And in your marriage, I don't know exactly what kind of joy and sorrow, what kinds of sickness and health you'll you'll be asked to endure But here's the thing, the promise that you make has nothing to do with the circumstances that you face. Because you can't make any promises about the circumstances, understand? You can't promise that you'll always be joyful and happy. You can't promise that you'll have as many children as you hope. You can't promise that you'll always have all the money to buy all the things that you want. You can't promise circumstances. You have no control over circumstances. The only thing that you can promise is no matter what, I will stay with you. I will love you, I will cherish you, I will keep you, no matter the circumstances of our lives, understand? So you must have realistic expectations, and you must understand the promise that you're making. It's not a casual promise. If you're really not willing to stay, no matter how difficult it becomes, then don't make the promise, don't get married. If you're really not the person who can make a promise and keep a promise, then you really need to get your first relationship right, and that is the relationship with the Lord. You need to be the kind of person that can make and keep a promise until you die. And if you're not, that's a spiritual issue, understand? That's a spiritual issue. 
catch all the little foxes, the scripture says, these things that ruin a marriage. And I think one of the things that ruins it quicker than anything is unrealistic expectations. If you expect that you'll always be happy, if you really expect that she's always going to buy her pajamas at Victoria's Secret, then you've never been to Target, buddy. You You understand? If you really expect that everybody's going to get a country breakfast every morning, you have got such a a rude awakening and a lot of disappointment ahead of you. If you have realistic expectations, you will avoid a lot of disappointment. It's going to be very, very good at times, but at times it's going to be really, really hard. That's marriage. And I'm still telling you, it's very, very good. It's very, very good. Let let me say this. I think the second fox that we have to destroy early on is is that um, failure to feed the friendship. You two probably got together in the first place because you were best friends. Do you remember? Do you remember how you could stay up all night long talking about nothing? Do you remember how nobody wanted to leave, nobody wanted to let go? I mean, it's just such an amazing time of being friends. You could just talk and talk and talk and listen and listen and listen, and and you just love all of that time together. You didn't really have to have anything to do. You just wanted to be together. It was that friendship. It was that, that idea that you were with your very, very best friend. What I'm telling you is this is the soul of your marriage, That friendship is the soul of your marriage, and you must never lose that. As a matter of fact, in the early stage of springtime of marriage, you got to feed that friendship. Because if you're not careful, you'll become enemies before you become friends, and that is a devastating thing for your marriage. Feed the friendship. Make sure that you feed the friendship. That means you continue to spend time together. That's really why it would probably be a really good idea don't throw anything at me. A really good idea if you're newly married to get rid of the television. Throw it out. It's not helping you. It's not helping you. You watch like two seasons of Walking Dead over a weekend on Netflix. Don't you understand? You could be doing something else. Didn't you get married to do something else? Oh my goodness, you really would rather watch Parenthood than turn off the television and look in each other's eyes? What's wrong with you? You're newlyweds. You can't think of anything better to do than to watch a rerun of Law and Order? May I give you some suggestions? Turn off the television. Throw it out. It's not helping you. It's just not. And for some of you, the pets, I mean, honestly, the pets could be in the way. I mean, I mean, come on. If I walk in the house and I hear my wife say, come here, big boy, come over here to mama, come here, big boy, I want her talking to me. <laughs> y'all laughing about it? That's not a joke. <laughs> come over, give mama a kiss, give mama a kiss. There you go. I want, I want to be the only one in the house giving mama a kiss. You understand? You see, early on, you can have so many distractions, and it happens before you know it. You just begin to grow apart. you got to feed the friendship. Understand, marriage is not all about just being lovers, but it's not all about sex. It's about being friends. And at the end of this thing, you want to know that you have lived your life with your best friend. You have to feed the friendship. you got to learn to be a team. Because you've got a lot of stuff to get through. You have no idea. But this 
wonderful, blissful early time, the springtime of your marriage, is the opportunity for all of that passion, all of that romance, all of that ecstasy to somehow turn into something deeper, something that can last through the years. That means that that chemical rush, that bliss, that uh, amazing, uh, amazing buzz that you have together, that's eventually got to turn into genuine intimacy and, and real sharing where you don't hide from each other, where you don't have to keep secrets from each other. It's got to turn into trust, where I know that I can give you my heart and you won't hurt me. It's got to turn into friendship. Read the Song of Solomon when you get home. Look at the times when they say, my lover, my friend, my lover, my friend. You understand? You want to be lovers, but you got to be friends. It's it's the soul of the marriage. You, You have to be a team. You've got to come together and form a team because for the rest of your lives, the world's going to come against you and the devil's going to throw everything he can to divide you. That's why the bond between the two of you has to be so strong. And these early years are are that time when you come together, you you bond, you become one flesh. I love what Brandon Harris, one of our resident experts in love and marriage, Brandon Harris says that you need to be a team. And the best way to make sure you're on the same team is not to keep score. Isn't that good? Brandon says the moment you begin to keep score, you're no longer on the same team. That's good. Because see, that's the thing. This early springtime of marriage, it it doesn't last forever. It's good. It's very, very good. But it's not meant to last forever. It it is the shallowest. It it is in many ways the, the very, very young, unripe fruits of love but it is the start of something wonderful. It, it is the beginning. I love verse eight. Ah, I hear my lover coming. This is the woman talking. I hear my lover coming. He's leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Isn't that awesome? Stop, ladies, just picture it right now. You know, isn't that awesome? You know, right now, if he leaps over the mountains, things would jiggle forever. You know, isn't that just great? He's leaping over the mountains. He's bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle or a young stag. Awesome. My lover is like a swift gazelle, a young stag, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. What's that about? What's that about? It's about a man. So in love, he will overcome every obstacle for her. He'll jump over mountains. He'll bound over hills. He'll give up the remote, you understand? He'll sit half a day in a lady's clothing store, you understand? He'll stand over the mall and hold her purse. (laughs) Jumping over mountains, bounding over hills. Well, what's the point? The, The point is there are always obstacles between you. There are always obstacles to the relationship, always little foxes coming into the vineyard. And the point is, this is a man so determined, so determined to get to her that he will overcome every obstacle. I guess bottom line, in the springtime of marriage, you haven't seen a lot of obstacles yet, but you will. You will. 
And you will have to learn together how to overcome the obstacles, how to bound the hills, how to let nothing in heaven or earth separate you. It will take very, very muscular commitment. It will take a lot of leaping over mountains and bounding over hills, but but this is the point. If you will give love a chance, if you will try to keep the foxes out of the vineyard, if you will make sure that nothing separates you, You will really love the springtime of marriage, and you will be able to see the summer. Let's come back next time and talk about summer. Stop right now and pray with me, though. Let's pray. We thank you so much, Lord, for what you have created between a man and a woman. It is powerful when it is good, it is also powerful when it is bad because, Lord, nothing can overcome love. You yourself, O oh God, are the God who is love. And you say that whoever loves is born of God and knows God. That just tells us, Lord, that our ability to love each other comes from our ability to know and love you. Lord, I know that there are marriages in this house, marriages in the sound of my voice that are struggling. Some, Lord, still in the early weeks, early months, early years of marriage, Lord, and the honeymoon never even got off the ground. Already, Lord, a couple so disappointed, already a couple in such conflict, Lord, that ought not be. Or Jesus, I pray that we would learn to love you so much that loving one another would come more naturally. I pray, Lord, that we would know so much of your faithfulness that we would be able to live lives of faithfulness. Lord Jesus, I pray for the children in this congregation. I pray for our children, our nieces, our nephews. I pray, Lord, that we will raise them in such a way that they will become men and women who can make promises and keep them until they die. I pray, Lord, that we will raise our sons and daughters to be men and women who are able to endure hard things without giving up, without losing love, without losing faith, without losing hope. Lord Jesus, I pray for marriages in this church. Some of us struggle in ways that nobody ever knows. We come to church and we put on a happy face, but we go home and we feel like we're going to smother. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless husbands and wives. Bless them, Lord, with all of the faith, all of the hope, all of the love they need to make it through this season and into the next season. And may the next season, Lord, bring peace and happiness. We pray these things for the sake of the ones we love. And in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, the first relationship in your life is not your relationship with your spouse. The first relationship in your life is your relationship with Christ. And if you are out of fellowship with Christ, if you do not have a strong relationship with Christ, Every other relationship in your life will suffer. All relationship problems are spiritual problems. So whatever your struggle is, whatever your problem is, Jesus is still the answer. And you need to learn to love him first that you can begin to love other people. I'm inviting you to come to him this morning as we sing. Altar is open if you want to come forward to pray. At your seat, you may pray. Come forward with your spouse if you want. However you're being led at this point, will you come to Jesus and let him fill your heart with the love that you need for this life? Stand together. Let's sing.
Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them. Take my hands and 